Thanks. It's wonderful to be here again as we are uh, at the beginnings of another year and uh, another academic year for you guys. I know my oldest daughter is studying psychology, so she's getting ready for the new year. And my younger daughter, who is doing matric this year, has an intention to be part of this congregation next year. She wants to come to Stelly's, so um, that'll be exciting. But it, <laughs> uh, you say that now, wait till you get to know. <laughs> and it's awesome that Victor and Lorinda are uh, going to be moving here. They're an awesome couple, awesome family. They've been a blessing. You've been in quite a few congregations over the years, eh? Four, four congregations in about 18 years? 14 years? 15 years. Any, any advance on 15? So they've been around a long time. They've been a massive blessing. Uh, they've been a blessing to the eldership team. Victor moves quite powerfully in the prophetic. Uh, so watch yourselves. <laughs> but they're an amazing couple, and uh, I'm sure they're going to really uh, add a huge amount to, to what's doing. And, and it's wonderful that, that there's this kingdom mentality of it's not about me and my preference and my comfort, but I'll go where I'm needed and uh, do what's needed to be done. And that's in line with what I want to talk about tonight. And I don't often give my preachers a title. Often, you know, the guys come up to me, the AV guys come up to me after and say, what's the title of your preach? I go, I've got no idea. Give it one. But the title of my preach tonight is a question. The question is, where are the mighty men? And women. <laughs> Where are the mighty men and the warrior women? You know, I, I find it so interesting as I look through scriptures how God often, when he wants to do something significant on the earth, he finds a person. And he works through that person. But what you often find is when that person is sold out for the Lord, that person attracts other people. And that one hero of the faith attracts other heroes. Heroes attract heroes. It's just the nature. Like attracts like. And, you know, when, as I was reading about David, David is one of the great heroes of the faith, right? David, a, a, a man who did great exploits. And he was surrounded by mighty men. And as I was looking at that, I thought, what an amazing contrast that was to when we read about Saul's reign, because Saul started well. But by the time the Philistines attack Israel and Goliath's there, we read that for 40 days, every morning and every evening, Goliath would march out and he would shout at the Israelites and defy them to come do battle with him. And for 40 days and for 40 nights, not one man volunteered. Where were the mighty men? The king didn't. His soldiers didn't. His captains didn't. Nobody was willing to go and face Goliath until a shepherd boy arrived. And one of the, one of the most shameful moments for me in Saul's whole life, and Saul did some really dodgy things, if you read his story. But one of the most shameful things for me is after 40 days and 40 nights of this this giant Philistine defying the people of God and defying God himself, this young shepherd boy comes to him and says, I'll fight him. And eventually Saul goes, okay then. 
Saul's the king. We read earlier that Saul was head and shoulders taller than any other man in Israel. He was huge. He was strong. He was the leader of God's people. And yet, he was willing to send a shepherd boy out to fight on his behalf. Now, we know how it ended, so we kind of don't always think it was that bad a deal. But think about it for a second. You're the king of Israel. You're supposed to be leading. You're supposed to be giving the example. You're supposed to be the one who puts courage into people. And you're willing to let a shepherd boy fight your fights for you? It's quite shameful. But when David becomes king, he attracts so many mighty men. So many men who do amazing things. Some of them who do greater things in one sense than David did. And I want to talk to us about being mighty men. Because if we look at the media, if we look at even people's perceptions of Christianity, have you noticed that if you look in, in, in movies or films, if there's a bad guy, it's usually the priest up, right? The one who looks really spiritual is actually usually really evil. Because he's, he's a raving hypocrite. Or he's really weak and weedy and ineffectual. Because people can't perceive that a Christian can be strong. We've got to be either hypocritical or wimps. When I was growing up, when I was your age, I I had friends who would say to me, you know, Christianity is just a crutch. And my answer at times was, you know what? It is a crutch. I am weak and I am broken and I need something to lean on. So I've chosen the strongest possible thing to lean on, which is Jesus. What are you leaning on? You're leaning on sex, drugs, rock and roll? Go ahead, because those things aren't strong enough to sustain you. But what I've got is strong enough. And I acknowledge that I'm weak in and of myself. I need somebody to lean on. Make a good song, wouldn't it? (laughs) We all need somebody to lean on. But when I acknowledge my own weakness, how ineffectual I am, you know, I can have a desire to change the world. Who's got a desire to change the world? That's great. You know how successful you're going to be on your own? You don't have the power. You don't have the strength. And David himself understood this. David wrote an amazing psalm. I love it. Uh, In Psalm 8. And I can imagine he, he wrote this while he was tending the sheep. And he was at night and he was looking up. He says, oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You who set your glory above the heavens. He's talking about the the majesty of God, the infinite nature of God. God is all powerful and all present. God is bigger than we can imagine. And he's, he's looking at the infinite greatness of God. And then he says from verse three, when I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and stars that you set in place, then what is man that you are mindful of him? 
the son of man that you should care for him? Who am I that you should even know that I exist? You set the stars in place with a word. Have we got any astronomy students or anybody who knows us astronomy here? How many stars are there? More than 20, I think. <laughs> I think our galaxy contains 100 billion stars. And our galaxy is only one of millions. And they were put in place by the word of God. And then in the middle of the Milky Way, not even in the middle, on the edge of the Milky Way, kind of a dodgy neighborhood of the Milky Way, is this tiny little planet with seven, nearly eight billion people on it. And God knows you. Do you know how insignificant you are? And you don't hear that much in church, do you? Because you hear messages about how important and how awesome and how great and how powerful you are. But we can't hear about how significant we are without first understanding how insignificant we are. And what David does, David marries his own insignificance with the omnipotent power of God. And when those two are married together, then we achieve significance. That's why David could say to Goliath, no, you come with me with a spear, I come with you against the power of God Almighty. I'm not coming at you with my own strength and my own skills and my own strategies and my own ability with a sling. I'm coming against you with the power of God himself. And I am insignificant, but the most significant being in existence is living in me and through me, and therefore I gain significance out of my insignificance. And that's why I can say I want to be a mighty man, not because I'm powerful, but because the mightiest of men lives within me. The mightiest of men has called me. The mightiest of men has said he wants to use me and empower me and equip me to do great things. And still, I find it so hard to see myself as significant. I find it so hard. Maybe you don't. Maybe you've got more self-esteem than I do. I find it so hard. I know the theology, but in practice, who am I? How many of you know the theology that God wants to use you powerfully to do the impossible? How many of you know that theology? How many of you actually believe it for you? That's good. But often we don't. So often our theology, our global theology and our personal theology are different. Do you know how I know that? Because I sit with so many people and they say, God can't forgive me. I say, but have you read? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know God forgives everybody, but he just can't forgive me. God can use anybody, but he can't use me. It's quite arrogant really, isn't it? to think you're so unique. <laughs> but how many of you tr struggle with that actually? Come on, be honest. I know we're in church, but we're allowed to be honest. 
But God wants us to rise up as mighty men, mighty women, warriors who will do great exploits. And the first thing that's important in in that, the most essential qualification, in a sense, to do great exploits, (coughs) we read about in Daniel. And in Daniel, he writes this, those who know their God will do great exploits. Those who know their God, those who are in a relationship with God, those who know the nature of God, those who understand the power of God, those who understand the heart of God will do great exploits. You know, unfortunately, in the church around the world today, there are many men in ministry trying to do great exploits, trying to build big ministries, trying to uh, move in power and signs and wonders, but they're divorced from a relationship with Jesus. And it looks impressive, but it's not eternal. (coughs) But the great exploits performed by those who truly know their God have eternal significance. And sometimes they don't seem that significant at the time. Does anybody know, who's heard of Billy Graham? Who thinks he was a significant man of the kingdom? Who knows the name of the person that got him saved? Who knows the name of the person who led me to the Lord? Was that significant? That person at the time probably didn't think so. I was just a kid. We've got to see things with kingdom eyes. Some of my great heroes of the faith are people who who did kids' church. When I got saved and I was a kid in church, and they would come out of a meeting to look after the kids and teach us and equip us. But God wants you, he wants to use you to do things that will change eternity. And for that to happen, we can't be cowed by fear and insecurity and a sense of weakness. We've got to understand that though we are insignificant, we are linked to, we are in relationship with, (coughs) and we are empowered by Almighty God Himself. And we are not weak, we are not ineffectual. I'm going to quote Jordan Peterson. How many of you have heard of Jordan Peterson? How many of you like Jordan Peterson? He's not very popular on most university campuses because he's not very politically correct. But he said this, a harmless man is not a good man. A good man is a very dangerous man who has that under voluntary control. Can I read that again? Because it's actually a profound statement. A harmless man is not a good man. A good man is a very dangerous man who has that under voluntary control. How dangerous was Jesus? 
gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And, you know, the movies portray him like walking around like... Like some kind of stoned out guru. Jesus was incredibly dangerous. When James and John said, shall we call down fire on the city? He didn't say, oh, I can't do that. It's... He was perfectly capable of calling fire down on a city. Do you know that all things are sustained by the power of his word? Do you know what that means? You know, in in cartoons and things, it's like, if you do something to upset God, you get struck by lightning. God doesn't need lightning to kill you. All he has to do is stop letting you exist. Because he's sustaining your life. All he has to do is stop sustaining you. It's not like, if, if, if I want to kill somebody, I have to kill them. But your very life is being sustained by his word. He doesn't need lightning. He doesn't need fire. He doesn't need brimstone. All he needs to do is stop speaking your life into existence. And you will cease to be. Jesus was incredibly dangerous and still is. One of my favorite book series is the Narnia Chronicles. Who's read the Narnia Chronicles? And Aslan the lion, who's a representation of Jesus. And they say, is he safe? Is Is he tame? No, he's not a tame lion. And he's not safe. But he's good. I want to read you a passage from one of those chronicles um, of Narnia, the silver chair. And in this part of the story, you've got a a young girl called Jill who's um, found herself in Narnia. And she's been walking around for hours. She's really thirsty. And eventually she hears a stream and she starts walking towards the stream. And then she sees Aslan. Now, Aslan is a lion, but he's a picture of Jesus. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it was angry. It just said it. I don't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. 
There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. And in order to drink truly of the things of God, we love to sing about the river, right? We're swimming in the river, we're jumping in the river, we're drinking from the river, we're fishing in the river, whatever. We love songs about rivers and streams. (laughs) The only way we can drink from the river is to come through Christ. And we've got to understand who he is, the mighty king of kings. The first time he came to earth, he came humbled. He came in the form of a servant. But he conquered death. He conquered Satan. He sat at the father's right hand and he's coming back. And next time he comes back, he's not coming as a humble servant, but as a conquering king. And all his enemies will flee before him. And there's this really warped and twisted theology going around in many churches that we shouldn't fear God because we love God and God loves us and, you know, perfect love casts out all fear and all. That's bad theology. Yes, we love God. And all I can do to illustrate how those things work is if you look at John the Apostle, John wrote the Gospel of John. How did he describe himself in the Gospel of John? Does anybody know? The apostle that Jesus loved. He's known as the apostle of love. He's the one that at the Last Supper reclined and laid his head on the chest of Jesus, who could hear the whispers of Jesus. They would carry him into the church. They would have to carry him because he was so old and frail. And because he was the last living apostle, they say, John, teach us the mysteries of of Jesus. Teach us the profound theology of, of Jesus. Teach us the most important things of Jesus. And every time he would say, dear children, love one another. That was how profoundly he understood the love of God and how it was passed to others. And yet this same John, while he was in exile on the island of Patmos, had a revelation of Jesus. And this revelation of Jesus was the risen Jesus on his throne, exalted and glorified. And John says, and when I saw him, I fell on the floor as one dead. You see, he didn't see fear and love as opposites. He saw how they could coexist. And we need to be a people who have aspects of both in our lives. We need to consider the sternness and the kindness of God. And we need to understand the power of the one before whom we come. We need to understand the power of the one that we serve. Because he is the first and greatest mighty man. When we read about David and his mighty men, often most preachers will use David uh, and, and illustrations of David um, as 
you know, he's our leader and how do we respond to leaders? But David ultimately is actually a picture of Christ. He's a type or a shadow of Christ. The picture of David and Goliath primarily isn't that if we're brave enough, we can slay giants. The primary story is that Jesus goes and slays the giants on our behalf. But then, because of that, we need to represent him well and we need to go in his power and in his faith and in his courage. And just as Jesus was dangerous, we need to be dangerous. How dangerous are you? David's mighty men were dangerous. Can I give you some examples? And by the way, mighty men don't always look like mighty men, especially at first. <coughs> you know, sometimes when people come, to, come into a church, they don't look like they've got it all together. They don't like, look like they can change anything. And if we don't see them as God sees them, and if we don't see them as they can be, rather than as what they are, we will keep people from rising up into what God's got for them. I remember years ago, we had a lady get saved in Josh Jen, uh, in, uh, in Tableview. She came out of prostitution and drugs. And uh, so she got saved and she realized her life had to change, which meant she no longer had an income, she had to somehow escape her pimp. She had to stop sleeping around. She had to trust God. She had to quit drugs, go through withdrawal, all of those things, change her language, change everything changed. But it was a process. And one, one Sunday, kind of halfway through the meeting, she went to stand outside to get a breath of air, and she, she lit up a cigarette. And somebody came up to her and said, how dare you smoke, that's a sin. And she was so broken, and so offended by that. She, she left and she never came back. Yeah, maybe smoking is wrong, but you know, we're all in a process. And God doesn't compromise with sin but in a sense, he does. Can I give you an example? Can I, can I use, who's been saved longer than 10 years? Okay, I'm going to use you as an example. Has God convicted you of sin in the last six months? Yeah. Why didn't he convict you of everything on the day you got saved? <laughs> there was too much. It was too overwhelming. You would have just gone, there's no hope. But what he does, he accepts you as you are. He loves you too much to let you stay as you are. And he begins to convict you and he begins to change you and he begins to empower you. But he tends to do one thing at a time. His list was way too long for me. He's still doing things in me. And I used to think the big things were things like smoking and drinking. And the longer I've been saved, I realized the biggest things are things like selfishness and pride and laziness. Wow. 
And so as we embrace one another in our imperfections, it's not that we have to be perfect in order to be the mighty men and women of God. It's that as we come as we are and say, I want to be like him, then he empowers us and we become the mighty men and women of God. When the people first came to David, we read in 1 Samuel 22 verse 2, the people that came to him, this is how it describes them, those that were in distress, in debt, and discontented. It's not a good look, right? That was David's army at first. David's army was made out of the distressed, the indebted, and the discontent. He didn't get the pick of the litter. He didn't get the... And the reality is, the people who get saved are those who know they need a savior. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said. You know why? Because when I know that I'm spiritually bankrupt, I can ask for mercy and receive salvation. Somebody who thinks he's spiritually rich will never ask for a savior. So the people that will come to us are the discontent. I'm not content with life. The ones who are indebted in sin and unforgiveness. Those who are in distress. Those who are crying out in need. And we're all in need. It's just some people haven't realized it yet. And David takes those men, just like Jesus takes them, and turns them into a mighty army. And of his mighty men, we read a number of them in uh, 2 Samuel 23. In verse 11, and I'm not going to mention the names just because I can't pronounce them. From verse 11, we read about a guy, and the Philistines come, and trample his lentil patch. So he kills a bunch of them over lentils. I don't even like lentils. I know you're all kind of millennials and stuff. You're probably all really into lentils and hummus and stuff. But... <laughs> and almond milk and... Uh... Yeah. Girl says, I gave you like 65 creatures that could give you milk and you still have to go and find it from almonds. He's like, what is wrong with you people? (laughs) He kills a whole bunch of Philistines because of a lentil patch. Another dude, it says, he went and killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Like, the lion's in a pit. It's not bothering anybody. It's cold out. I just stayed home. No, I want want to go out and kill something. (laughs) Guys, honestly, we've become so safe and so tame. Really. The closest we come to killing anything on a snowy day is on an Xbox. (laughs) God put a warrior spirit in you. With Adam and Eve, he said, subdue the earth and all the animals in it. He created men and women to be robust and strong and have authority and dominion. And Moses was like, oh, I don't know. It's just too hard. 
got a new person in church, can you go and say hello to them? I don't know, I've got social anxiety disorder. Sorry, I'm not mocking disorders, but man, everything is too difficult nowadays. Got to rise up and face our challenges and face our fears and face our difficulties. You know, often when we preach about David and Goliath, we go, you know, let's slay our Goliaths. And we all go, yeah, let's slay our Goliaths. As though our Goliaths are out there and some of them are. But you know where most of our Goliaths are? They're in your mirror. It's like, let's go beat up the enemy. Let's see where the enemy is us. And I've got to put my flesh to death and my comfort and my preference and my fears, and my unbelief. Three mighty men. David asked for a cup of water, so they go out and kill a bunch of men. Oh, for a cup of water. Right, let's go, guys. Swords out. These are dangerous men. I want to hang out with dangerous men. I don't want to hang out with wusses and people who are just safe and tame. And those of you who've been saved a long time, I want to address you most of all. Because we start out on fire. And we start out a little bit crazy. And all the mature Christians look at us like, yeah, it's all right, you'll settle down in time. You're a bit weird now because you're newly saved. But give it some time and you'll be just like the rest of us, lukewarm and safe and tame. When somebody's like that, when somebody's newly saved and they're like, ah, ah, and they're going out and like they can't talk to anybody without mentioning Jesus and you're going, please, let's be a bit more appropriate. It's like instead of, instead of pouring cold water on them, Let's steer them and let them inspire our passion. Somebody once said, the state of the church today is such that when the average Christian catches on fire, everybody just thinks they've got a fever. I was talking to a guy in England after I preached, and he said, in your preach, he said, I'm trying to understand it. What you're saying is there's two kinds of Christians. There's like radical on fire Christians and then lukewarm Christians. And I said, no. There's only one kind of Christian. Obedient Christians. Because we've got to obey. It's not an option. Are we willing to be unsafe? Are we willing to be dangerous? Are we willing to stand by in the tough times, in, uh, in 2 Samuel 16, David's going through a difficult time and there's a guy called Shimei who starts coming out and he's, and he's cursing David. And he's calling him all kinds of names. And David's like in a bad place. He, he's not got his authority. He's, he's, he's losing the kingdom to his son. It seems there's all kinds of things going on. But we read, and his mighty men were to his left and to his right. See, mighty men and women will not desert you in the bad times. 
And here's another thing we've got to understand about being mighty men and women of God. We've got to hold truths in tension. We've got to hold theology in tension. So a lot of popular preachers today just like, you're the head, not the tail. You're victorious. You're triumphant. God is going to just heal everybody you pray for. And, you know, ev- you know the world's just going to become more and more Christian and we're going to be triumphant. And it's quite easy to be brave and courageous when you think everything's going to go your way all the time, right? The reality is, while there's truth in that message, the other side of the message is all those who desire to live a godly life will face persecution. You will be hated on account of me. How many of you know you're hated by some just because you're here? Because it used to be that Christians were like, okay, Christians are the goody-goodies, not much fun, a bit boring to be with, a bit weak and ineffectual, but, you know, the goody-goodies. But the world has shifted. Christians are not goody-goodies anymore. Christians are evil, bigoted, spewing hate speech and intolerance. We will tolerate everything except intolerance. Have you noticed, for example, that with sexuality, there's only one form of sexual behavior that you can mock these days, and that's chastity. You can, you can believe in sleeping with anything that moves as often as you like, in any way you like, but if you say, no, no, I'm a virgin, or if you say, I'm saving myself for marriage, then you're just insane. So any kind of sexual activity in this world is celebrated. Not just permitted, but celebrated. But tell somebody you, you've chosen not to have sex, and it's like, no, there's something wrong with you. The world has shifted for you just to stand firm. It's going to take courage. We talk about evangelism and outreach, and God requires that of us. But if you're not willing just to stand firm. And it's scary, I know. Believe me, I know. I grew up in a school where I was the only, I went to an old boys school. I was the only boy in my year who professed to be a Christian. Out of 120 odd students in my year. I've told this story before, but when I was 12 on a camp, two kids pulled out a knife one night, threatened me with a knife and said, bow down in front of this fire and worship Satan or we'll knife you. It takes courage to say I'm a follower of Jesus. Because it's dangerous. Why does the world fear our message so much? They claim it's ineffectual nonsense, but the reason they want to silence it is because it's dangerous. That bit, they've got true. They want to keep us silent. They say, what you're saying is dangerous. It is, just not in the way they think it is. Are you full of faith? Are you full of amens? Are you vocal within the confines of this meeting? 
Or can you stand just as firm when you're surrounded by those who would curse you and insult you and throw things at you? Our message is dangerous. Our lives are dangerous. Our faith needs to be dangerous. We settle for such a tame, safe faith. And again, I'm not going to get into the theology of healing, but sometimes we're so back-footed praying for healing, just in case the person isn't healed, what will I look like? Who cares what you look like? I often do this. Who's ever raised somebody from the dead? Anybody here raise somebody from the dead? How, how many of you would love to raise somebody from the dead? Right. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. So you've got a desire to raise people from the dead. How many of you have prayed for a dead person? That's the answer for why most of you have never raised anybody from the dead. <laughs> and those that, you've, that have... The answer is, I've not raised anybody from the dead yet. I know a couple of people who've raised people from the dead. My friend Peter Chander, his wife died. He raised her from the dead. He told me this story. I was like, well, tell me the details. And then a friend came in about two hours later and I said, Peter, tell him your story. He said, which story? I said, you know, the story about you raising your wife from the dead. He said, I've got better stories than that. Have you got better stories? You know why? Most of the time, because you're too afraid. By the way, I spoke to his wife shortly after that. I wanted her side of the story. I said, tell me your side. What was it like? She said, I was so angry. <laughs> <laughs> She was with Jesus. She had to come back. <laughs> Is your faith dangerous? Is your love dangerous? I realized something recently. And the Lord revealed this to me, and it's, it's one of those things that he could have revealed long, long ago. But as I said, growing up in an old boys' school, I was the only Christian. I was the only working-class boy. It was a, I got a scholarship to a private school, so I lived on the, in the wrong end of town. I had a, the wrong accent. Uh, I didn't have the money to do what the other cat guys did. Most of the guys, as soon as they turned 17, had cars. I had a bicycle that I bought myself. You know, I just saw my whole school, to, school life. I had no friends at school. Not one. Probably because I'm pretty unlikable as well, but I'll, I'll, I'll use those things as an excuse. But I had no friends at school. And so what I began to do, I began to develop a coping mechanism, which is that I can survive without friends. And in some ways, that's a good thing. If it's in God, it can be a good thing that I will not compromise who I am in order to be popular but on the other side in an ungodly way it fosters independence and I'm an introvert and I've realized I wasn't necessarily born an introvert I trained myself to be introverted as part of my survival mechanism and at times I wanted not to love people 
I, part of me was determined that if you don't care about people, then it's a lot easier in life. But because I knew Jesus, it was impossible for me actually to get to that place where I didn't care for people. I always did. It was a pain in the neck, but I did. And then I got older and I realized some of these thought patterns and behavior patterns were still in me. And I went to Bible college, I ended up in Josh Jan, I'm an elder, I'm a pastor. My job description is to love people. And one of the things I would say is I'm not very pastoral, that's not my primary gifting, and that is true, it's not my primary gifting. But one of the things the Lord convicted of me recently is, the problem, Mike, is you've learned to love safely. You learned to protect yourself and love people from a safe place. And you've got to relearn to love dangerously. Open your life and your heart and your home to those who are likely to stomp on your heart. Are you willing to love those who you know will break your heart? Because that's how Jesus loves. Do you have a dangerous faith? Do you have a dangerous love? Do you have dangerous joy? The kind of joy where people want to have you committed because you're smiling in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. Mike Fast is a good friend of mine. He's, he's an elder. He oversees um, a lot of the 412 churches in the Cape Flats. Last year, sudden diagnosis of leukemia. And the form of leukemia that he had, the doctor said 90% of people are dead within 21 days. Do you know what the treatment is for him? There was a lot of treatment at first, but now, right now he's undergoing the latest round of treatment. They give him arsenic. That is not good for you. It doesn't make you feel good. And throughout all this journey, where he's been faced with death, pain, suffering, vomiting, incredible headaches, the whole thing, his testimony is, I am still full of joy and a love of God and faith. People think you're insane. That's dangerous joy. But here's the thing. People are scared of dangerous people. But there's something inside us, I think all of us, where we long to be dangerous people ourselves. And most of us don't have the courage to be the first. But if we ally ourselves, if we join ourselves, if we give ourselves to other dangerous people, it becomes so much easier to be dangerous ourselves. I love standing, I love spending time with Mervis. Because Mervis is just like, I call him Merv the Perv. <laughs> it's so wrong, I know. Because he just loves everybody. He's just like, he's just like love. And, wherever he's, and he's, he's like, he loves dangerously. So I want to spend time with him. Not so that he'll love me, so that I can catch from him how to love people. I want to hang out with faith people. I want to hang out with evangelists because I'm a terrible evangelist. 
I'm the kind of guy, I'll speak to an unbeliever for 15 minutes and I start backsliding, he doesn't get saved. That's... <laughs> I want to pray, I want to spend time with people when Jonathan Conrath came to South Africa. I volunteered to drive him around and hang out with him, and my theology is very different from him, but I realized that guy has no fear of praying for any sickness, any disease, any infirmity, any time, and I've like, I've become safe, and I've used my theology to justify it, and I want to be dangerous like him. That's the sign that we're finishing. Saul didn't have mighty men because he wasn't a mighty man. He was concerned about his own reputation. He had a fear of man. When you read, this, when you read the story of Saul, you see that. He was more, consider, more, more concerned about his own reputation. But David, having been with the sheep in the field, saw the greatness of his God. Oh, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you should care for him. For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Think about it. The Lord has chosen to partner with us that all things will be put under the feet of Jesus. When he comes back one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Some will be doing it willingly. Some will be doing it forced. But God is calling us to be those who will represent him well so that more and more and more would willingly bow the knee now. And it's going to need mighty men of valor, mighty women of valor. The title of my preach, Where Are the Mighty Men? That's the question. The answer is this. Here are the mighty men. Here are the mighty women. And you may not feel so mighty. You may not feel so brave. You may not feel so accomplished. You may feel insignificant. And that's okay. As long as you go from that place of insignificance and join yourself to his significance and his power and let him display his power through you. My only question for you tonight do you have the courage to be dangerous? Will you be dangerous with me? And if you say, I'm scared, that's okay. I'm scared too. If you're not scared, you don't understand the mission. But as Mandela said, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is feeling the fear and doing it anyway. So I want to ask. And I don't want to do it just because it's a churchy thing. But if you feel you need to respond to this and ask the question, 
I would like you to stand and say, me. Are you willing? Do you have the courage to be dangerous? In the 80s, nobody will know this, you're all way too young. In the UK, there was a pop song by a, a couple of girls called Mel and Kim. And the lyrics to the song were, like or hate us, but you'll never change us. We ain't never going to be respectable. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a good anthem for us, eh? Like or hate us, but you'll never change us. We ain't never going to be respectable. We've got to stop being respectable and start getting dangerous. Lord Jesus, I thank you. That while we were still weak, poor, incapable of any good thing, you came and called us to yourself. And you put your Holy Spirit within us. And you said to your disciples and to us through them that greater things than we, we will do than you did while you were on the earth. Because through your Spirit... We have access to the power that saw the lame walk, the blind see, sinners repent, the dead live. We don't want to be safe. We don't want to be tame. And we don't want to see you as safe and polite and tame and weak and nice, you are powerful, and glorious, and holy, and majestic, and dangerous. And we want to represent you well. And we want to be a people who will dare to do the impossible. We want to dare to do things so great, so impossible, that if you're not in it, it is doomed to failure. Because we don't care about our own reputations. And if we fail, that's okay. And when we fail, we'll pick ourselves up and we'll try again. Because we serve a God who never fails. And we serve a God who overcomes. And we serve an omnipotent, omnipresent God. God, save us from safe. Save us from tame. Make us a dangerous people for your name's sake. Amen. Thanks, Mike.